1: not sure if I said good evening, good evening. It's it's nice sometimes um, to start the way we started tonight and just get to know each other a little bit. And um, I, I found it so helpful um, just sharing with others about what happens in practice, because it's interesting how There's always this layer where, because of the way that the mind works, we often think that so much of what's happening in our practice is so personal and so unique to us. And it's such a relief to hear other people's experience. And um, even though the instruction was to not refer it back to your own experience, which we can't help doing, just to notice how there are these patterns of mind that are really not so personal. Mm -hmm. Um, And also just the power of expressing um, some of these patterns that we see um, without having to analyze them or figure them out or... um, do anything other than name them. So I was going to start tonight, um, by dedicating the talk to Cindy Silverman, who some of you might know. Um, Cindy was one of the first, uh, students who really studied with me very seriously for a number of years, and, um coming to every single class and workshop, and she was one of the first people that showed me that really what's most powerful about this practice sometimes is just community. And um, a couple of months ago, Cindy was giving birth and had a couple of heart attacks while she was giving birth and was declared brain dead. And um, although she's still alive, it sounds like things are sort of going downhill for her. Right now, So, um, all day today I've been thinking about her, because I just heard about this last night, and um, I almost didn't know how to tell the story of what happened to her in her birth, because I think for, I mean, some of you are doctors and nurses in here, but for so many of us, we're not used to hearing dramatic stories like this of childbirth. The good news is that her son was born and is completely fine. Um, And it was interesting to me also just, uh, you know, this week uh, reading so many emails um, from people as the story has been spreading around and um, just seeing that so many people's names who are in the emails are many of the same students who all started practicing at the same time um, when Cindy started practicing. And um, for those of you, there are a few of you in here that know Cindy, um, just how um, much her life transformed um, by making friends with the people who she practiced with. And um, really a profound thing to see when that happens. And um, in a way, this refers to the subject of the evening tonight, which is um, Bhutanjali's first comments about death and um, what happens at death. And um, it's interesting because I think for all of us, when we contemplate death, um, fear arises in the same way that we can recognize this in every moment of our meditation practice, one of the fears that arise around death is that it happens to me. It's not just that there's this impersonal body that is going to um, transform and go up in smoke or be buried and be eaten by ants, um, but that somehow this sense of self that we're so invested in... um, is so fleeting and comes to an end, and has a kind of expiry date that is um, covered over by all of the energy we put into um, storytelling and grasping. And so for me, whenever I hear a story of somebody who I know or someone close to me who's dying or died it sort of uh, forces on me again you know, the, this kind of uh, question um, not so much these days for me about what happens when you die but what's happening now you know, and um, what's important and I hope that for some of you in this meditation practice it's a way of kind of distilling um, what's important and what's not important Especially when we're living in such a consumer culture where all of us are influenced um, by the um, greed and the grasping that's kind of in the the air all the time. And we forget. We forget about what's important. About friendship and about time and generosity and... um, Community. So, I'd like to read a little bit, uh, a little poem from uh, Gary Snyder um, about Dharma. And this might uh, help us understand what Patanjali is talking about. Because Patanjali is making a very subtle statement here about death. And I want to catch his subtlety. And then today, I came across this poem by Gary Snyder. And I thought it captured the subtlety perfectly. The title of the poem is Avocado. The Dharma is like an avocado. Oh, there's an exclamation point at the end of Avocado. The Dharma is like an avocado. Some parts so ripe, you can't believe it. But it's good and other places hard and green without much flavor, pleasing those who like their eggs well cooked. And the skin is thin. The great big round seed in the middle is your own original nature, pure and smooth. Almost nobody ever splits it open or ever tries to see if it will grow. Hard and slippery, it looks like you should plant it but then it shoots out through the fingers and gets away. So, um, Patanjali uses this term purusha or pure awareness to talk about original nature. That our original nature is empty of thingness that what we think of as a true self is actually really an absence and it's experienced as an absence of um, self-imagining. And from this side of the door we can't know what happens to that self that we're writing all the time Um, because we're not there yet. We don't even know what's going to happen in the next second, in the next minute, in the next hour, in the next breath. And when we really start to penetrate what is meant by mindfulness of breathing, we start to see that the breath itself has a whole universe in it, a whole lifetime in it. There's a birth, there's a death. We watch the impermanence of our thoughts the evanescence of everything that we try and cling to and hold on to. And yet, when we try and find something that lasts inside of all that change, it's kind of like the pit of the avocado. It, you, you go to grasp it and it, immediately it slips away. And so we try and create really big stories that try and hold the avocado pit but yet it's still so slippery and what's interesting about the slipperiness is that it's still called your original self or your original mind even though you don't know what it is and maybe you can't know what it is and actually maybe there's something liberating about knowing that you can't know I mean in a way this might be what the essence of waking up is all about which is that um, that self that you think you can find is unfindable and ungraspable and so the mind immediately on recognizing this flips into a kind of reverse theology and then says okay well then it doesn't exist and yet you can't say that either because we all have these unique patterns that exist which is how we love each other is through all these different patterns meeting different patterns. Um, So Patanjali was just saying in the the section that we've been reading that um, in every moment of perception we're, we're planting seeds in deep memory by the way we're interacting with what's showing up. And though that deep memory doesn't have a core, it too is a coming together and coming apart of conditions. Um, it does exist, but it doesn't exist in the way you think it exists, which is supposed to be incredibly perplexing. And so if you're nodding, then you've missed it. <laughs> <laughs> um, in his commentary about this section, here's what Chip Hartranff writes. As we sit in stillness, we inevitably find ourselves struggling to acquire more power over some aspect of our lives. Without necessarily knowing it, we're trying to feel happy or to conquer a physical or emotional problem or to become more attractive to others or simply to do a better job of meditating than we did last time. Each of these kinds of effort arises from a cha- attachment to previous thoughts or actions. Even our desire to let go of all of this is mired in concepts about letting, what letting go should feel like or what it might bring us. Non-reaction means no longer operating on the basis of any of these attachments whatsoever. As Patanjali explains, Though attachments carry over from the past, even as consciousness comes to settle in the present. So attachments carry over from the past, even as consciousness comes to settle in the present. So as consciousness settles in the present, these patterns are still flowing through like waves. And what's nice about this commentary is it captures the fact that that doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. These old patterns, these old um, um, you know, memory shapes and sculptures, they just keep flowing over and over through the mind, and they, they change the shape of consciousness. But what Patanjali is saying here, that doesn't stop. And it's interesting that right after that, he fo- Patanjali follows with this wonderful line, and here's his first comment about death. Once the body is gone, or once the body is dead, these latent impressions are dissolved in the natural world and are inclined to be reborn. You can follow along because he has done some crafty work here. Once the body is dead, So this is line 19. These latent impressions are dissolved in nature. They flow into the natural world, and they're inclined to be reborn. So the first thing you might notice is that Patanjali is... So let's think of this as an Iron Age worldview, right? Patanjali is breaking the tendency to talk about death in terms of reincarnation so you can say there's a distinction being made here between rebirth and reincarnation so in reincarnation there's a sense that the me that has experienced all of these um, uh, residues is is residues of can you pluralize risk? I don't know. Um, um, is going to be reborn and become something. And although I don't want to get into it too much tonight, um, the six realms that you can be reborn on in at that time in the Iron age view are related to the six uh, patterns of the caste system, which is kind of interesting. Um, and the six levels of Samadhi. So depending on what level of Samadhi you get to, That's the level that you'll be reborn in, which is related to the caste system. It's kind of interesting. But in order to have a self that's reborn, there has to be a belief that there is something that exists in the personality that receives all that residue. And actually carries through moment to moment to moment. And so philosophers have always tried to get around this. Like in Tibetan philosophy, they say, it's the subtlest, subtlest. But that's still positing something eternal, right? Something that's continuing in space and time. Patanjali breaks with that and says that the patterns themselves, which seem to come together and come apart, are inclined to be reborn. And that's every kind of pattern in every kind of sheath. So, when you die and your body is burned and it goes up in smoke, the matter that is your body is transformed. Energy is not created or destroyed, right? It, it, it changes shape. Now it's, you know, smoke going up into a cloud and then it rains and then the rain and lands on the soil, and then a flower grows, and then, you know, your grandchildren's grandchildren have honey, somehow related to a flower. We could go on in more and more detail, but nothing does. And some of you have studied with me when we've gone through the Buddha's teaching on the first foundation of mindfulness, where he teaches the 14 meditations on the decomposing corpse. How many of you have done Some of us have done that, right? And because we don't have access to corpses here, um, we were using some photographs somebody gave me from Burma, uh, where they went and they took a photograph of a corpse lying on the ground um, over 14 weeks, once a week. And When you look at a corpse, especially at the beginning where it gets bloated, and then um, maggots come out from the inside and start eating through the cheeks and through the eyes. And when you look at this corpse, it doesn't look dead. I mean, the human body actually looks more alive when it's dead. For those maggots, the human body is more alive than when you were alive Mm -hmm. so who are we to say that that's the end of the human body in many ways that's actually the beginning of the human body as it returns back to the natural world and the other thing that's fascinating about the images is that the colors of the body start to mirror the color of the earth all around the body and that's really fat, the, the way the, the, the hues of the blues change and the reds and the yellows. The body starts to return to earth again. And when you really meditate on those images, um, in a way, that the body is being reborn. The body is being reborn. And from the human perspective, we want to add that there's something attached to the body. And so we make up all kinds of stories about what's attached to the human body that then is somehow being worked on. And it's so hard for us to accept that this me that we've been working on, that is a a linguistic construction, um, falls apart. But I think for the meditator, we've seen already it falling apart. And we see how much better our, our life process goes when that's falling apart. When that self-story is not so dominant. In moment-to-moment awareness, seeing those viewpoints dissolving. And the word here that, that Patanjali uses is a very kind of mysterious word and nobody quite knows how to, how to translate it. The word is bhava, which in Buddhism is the word that's actually used to talk about meditation practice, which is kind of interesting. Um, but bhava literally means to become bhava. Um, one of my teachers, Richard Freeman, he has an interesting translation of it. He calls it ecstatic feeling ecstatic feeling and what I like about that is the sense that there is something called bhava who knows how to describe it and it's a word that's used very carefully in Indian philosophy because it talks about the way that a pattern has an inclination to come to life that within certain conditions certain patterns have this tendency to come to life And it's a little bit mysterious. And you could say that, um, you know, the original self, or when we're most creative, is actually bhava. Mm -hmm. You know, it's this this kind of inclination to birth or to create something. And where does it come from? Where's the, and and, you know, if we're respectful of the creative process, we don't know. (laughs) where it comes from and we do all kinds of really superstitious and silly things to protect the fact that we don't really know where it comes from and um, Patanjali is saying that bhava happens even at this impersonal level of um, deep memory that many patterns come together in ways that are just too complex for us to completely understand Isn't that frustrating? I mean, don't you want to know what happens? (laughs) And then he doesn't really give it much until later. He mentions it one more time, but he doesn't really give death very much weight. He's not offering you an idea of what happens or doesn't happen um, when you die. Any comments or questions? Mike? Um, what makes the impressions latent? And, first question, and the second question, which maybe should be the first question, the impressions, are they the shapes of memory? Is that what you're talking about? Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, the samskaras. Yeah. Sam means to come together, and kata means to make. So... Um, the way I, I often think of it is, you know, I spent some time when my son was small in Greece, and um, there was this river that flowed out into the sea. And he, he, he was, every day, he would take sticks, and he would uh, draw new lines from the river out into the sea. And, like, a couple hours later, he'd get a pretty good flow through that. And then he would draw, like, another vein off of it, another vein off that, And as the day would go on, there'd be all these tributaries, you know. And I remember one day looking at it, thinking, "Oh, these are the samskaras," (laughs) you know, (laughs) that that we draw these lines through our actions, and we all know how this works neurologically, you know, um, and um, or even in movement, right? And there are places where there's not such good flow, and places where there's too much prana, too much flow. And um, the more that prana or water or thought processes flow through these grooves, the deeper and deeper they get. And this is sort of the general theory of samskara. And, um, and why are they latent? Because we seem to be born with all of these very deep grooves. And some of them come to light. Um, when um, certain conditions are ripe for them to come to light. And people debate how much is nature and how much is nurture, and nobody will ever know. And um, it's fascinating. And the word that Patanjali used to describe that fascination is bhava, this kind of like bursting into being. And we don't exactly know and say which conditions give rise to what. Um, but yet um, when, when the pattern settles it's important to understand that the pattern doesn't settle into something that's fixed it's settling into other conditions settling into deeper conditions settling, to, and all those conditions are in flow and that's the really important point that Patanjali is starting to get at here Is that karma is not something happening to you. It's that all you are is karma. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's like some people talk about karma as like spiritual air miles, where you do certain things and like you collect the merit. Um, And the philosophies that have collecting merit understandings of karma are also philosophies that have reincarnation. Uh, views around death. And I remember one time giving a talk at Esther Meyer's studio on DuPont Street many years ago and um, these uh, three Tibetans came and one of the Tibetans said you know, for you to assume that there is no life after death, you know, that's a, that's a huge assumption because we begin with the assumption that there is life after death. And of course, you can just flip it around, right? For you to assume that there's life after death, you know, and it's just two completely different worldviews. You see, and um, and I think now, as you know, the, the Dharma comes to the West out of a culture where there is um, so much focus on um, reincarnation. Um, that um, it's important to see that it might be possible to tease karma out of the reincarnation worldview without losing anything. And I think that when one does this, it actually makes karma more rich um, as a kind of philosophical teaching. And um, that's a huge debate going on right now. And... um, In my own experience, I've never met a teacher who has insisted that um, karma and reincarnation have to go together. So, on the ground, that's been my experience. Uh, And, you know, if you're really interested in this, this debate started about ten years ago in Tricycle magazine with this interview between Stephen Batchelor and Robert Thurman. And uh, if, if you can look on, you know, just Google it, because it's both of them have such wonderful and sophisticated nuanced um, um, discussions about this. And Stephen Batchelor's perspective is that being fixed about reincarnation is not actually what the Buddha taught. And and he's coming this spring to teach for three days uh, on his new book, which is being published in March, which is called Confessions of a Buddhist Atheist. (coughs) And Robert Thurman thinks that without believing in reincarnation, you can't be Buddhist. So this is very interesting. Um, I don't want to get too far into that, but I will say that um, my opinion... (laughs) is that the Buddha was actually, like Patanjali, teaching something really radical in his understanding of a self that is contingent and impermanent and empty. And that after he died, his teachings were written down in a cultural vocabulary focused on reincarnation. And so they started adding or padding his his teachings with terms like relative and absolute or Buddha nature which is kind of a hidden way of sneaking in the soul in the back door which were not really his original teachings this is my opinion but I think the same thing is true with Patanjali you'll notice that in the Shambhala publication of Chip Hartramp's book um, Chip originally translated this sentence by saying um, these latent impressions incline one to be reborn after one leaves the body at death and is dissolved in nature. Because he was working from a lot of old commentaries and then he realized after that by saying one it's, it's... it's making it seem like there's someone receiving the karma. And then he changed the translation, um, which is now online, which is, once the body is gone and these latent impressions are dissolved in nature, they are inclined to be reborn. Do you see how slippery it is? It's so easy to reify that self. And... um, So that's what I'm wanting to tease out here for Patanjali. Um, And, you know, we don't do it in these evenings so much because we just sit a short time, but, you know, for some of you who've been on retreat, you know we've often explored practices where we'll ask questions while we're sitting. Like, for example, after a couple days of being quiet, we'll say some, you know, I'll have students say, you know, just when there's calmness... And you can stay with the breath. Just ask, "Who's breathing? Who's, who's breathing?" And of course, the mind fills up with like old video and film of old pictures of when you and gets really busy. And then the instruction will be, "Okay, notice that, and now let it all go. Find the breath again, and when you're quiet, who's breathing?" fills up with all these answers and you do this over and over again until this really interesting thing starts to happen which is as soon as you say who's breathing there's this gap that happens between when you ask the question and when you start answering it and the meditation instruction is to aim for the gap to really notice that gap kind of like when you see someone at a party where they see you and they say, you know, what do you do? This only happens in Toronto, I know. but (laughs) And there's like a gap before you can actually answer, you know? And um, that gap is really interesting. And um, we're interested in the gap. Because it's the place between um, breaths or between thoughts and um, it's not put together yet. And so part of our meditation experience as we start to deepen our practice is to, to, to ask these kind of questions uh, without being interested in the answer. And again, like we said at the beginning of studying this text, you know, Patanjali's main question is not what's the nature of awareness. It's who is aware. And related to this question, you might say, who's dying? Who dies? What is it that's dying? And uh, I don't know about you, but for me, when I ask that question, my mind just goes, you know? (laughs) And then quickly, it tries to put it back together again. Whoa, that was so cool. Let's do that again. You know, so... um, I encourage you to to do this kind of inquiry. And um, The other thing that I'll say before we finish is that Patanjali is also between two teachings here. So he's about to give you a practice of how to actually do this, how to really pay attention in this way. And the first way that he's going to teach is faith. But he has to twist what we think of as faith because he's not asking you to believe in a thing. So in what does one have faith, or what does one commit to, if one sees that the the things we invest in are temporary? What does faith mean? And um, so I just point that out to see the logic here. There's a really interesting sequence that's happening Any other comments or questions, thoughts, avocado ruminations? Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that as I'm speaking, you're not just agreeing, but that you can maybe get glimpses Mm -hmm. of what's meant. And then it's the avocado pit. And it just slips out of your hands.
0: On and it's like <laughs> this, uh, this, this uh, grasping for feeling like successful. It's a nice, it's a good sitting practice that I'm doing, and, and then all of a sudden it's just it, it it's all gone. Yeah, <laughs> and that's it's, it's exactly that. Yeah. You know, yeah. This Want to grasp? Yeah. This place that, it's, that that's what we're trying to let go, and as soon as I do, then I try to grasp that.
1: Yeah. Well, wasn't that commentary amazing of Chips, where he just talks about it in terms of power? Wanting to have power over something, and how that even includes trying to break through some kind of emotional dilemma. Is still trying to master something. And the illusion that if you let go, there's going to be something better there. He really nails it, I think. Slippery stuff. I'm yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. remembering back, um, just bringing the frames. Uh-huh. That has stuck with me a lot. About just watching when I frame things and how they dissolve. Yes.
1: So when I begin to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I know a lot of you have seen it, but just in case some of you haven't seen it in a while, you know, Tessa, who's not here. um, she, she built this frame and, and this person inside the frame when we were studying the Heart Sutra and she did a stop film is that what it's called? Stop film photography I don't know. a little short film um, about a person and all the ways they get framed and then they dissolve and then it turns into a big heart <laughs> and it's on YouTube just look up the Heart Sutra center of gravity or whatever on YouTube it's really really good And um, it's interesting to think about what I've been calling the storyteller as a kind of framer that's always trying to just capture it. If I can just capture this whole life and death deal with a really good metaphor, a really good myth or story, then um, solved. Then I can, ah, rest. And I think for me as well, I've
0: been noticing that I feel that if, like, or oh, the storyteller, I don't know who it is anymore, but if the storyteller doesn't talk about what's happening, the storyteller is afraid that it won't be as powerful an experience or as important. There's that, there's that fear. Yeah. That I need to talk about it. You
1: know,
0: about yeah. What's happening.
1: Yeah. 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 Yeah, and Patanjali calls that fear, Abhinivesha, the fear of the death of the story of me. Which is, you know, and for those of you who work with with people who are dying, this is what you're working with, right? I mean, this is what you're working with every day. And to really understand fear in terms of the fear of the death of the framer is a really powerful sort of way of of, um, contacting people in this experience.
0: And helping them
1: stay, you know, in contact with what's going on for them at that time.
0: It just seems like it's all a pattern of creativity. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Moving in and out of thoughts, creating, constructing, slowing it down, benefiting from that burst. Yeah. Uh, It's it's the essence of creation, is it not? Yes.
1: Yeah, and I think Patanjali would distinguish between creativity with fear and without fear. And how much of that creative mind process is based on fear. And um, you'll see. He's about to get to a good part. Because he's actually going to tell you how to practice this. Day in, day out. For the rest of your solemn life. Your common human unhappiness. Freud would say Freud said that's the best you can do common human unhappiness <laughs> because I was going to ask um, why are we why are we practicing that yeah, yeah. Like what are we
0: the next thing you're going to teach us why are we going to do that why are, why are we
1: practicing yeah, <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is the first half of Dogen's life. Dogen, Mm. his whole motivation for practice is because he didn't understand why you have to practice. (laughs) I mean, if we're all awake, we all have Buddha nature, why practice? Like, why why worry if it's based on fear or not based on fear? Like, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. I mean... Good question. On that note, (laughs) let's finish by chanting.